Hey guys, it's Jen and Sally. We weren't exactly sure how to start our show today because we have heavy hearts. We are thinking about the families of uh, the two protesters that were killed in Kenosha. And we're thinking about Jacob Blake. And we're just sad. We're sad. We're and sad. So we just we wanted to acknowledge that. Our hearts go out to these victims and their families. And we also wanted to encourage you to take some action and that we are going to take some action. And um, some a couple of ways to do that is you can find GoFundMes for uh, Jacob Blake and his recovery um, for Anthony Huber, who is one of uh, the victims. Uh, you can also donate to the Milwaukee Freedom Fund, um, who is supporting people who are protesting in Kenosha. Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 64. Welcome back, everybody. How you doing, Sally? You know what? I'm doing all right. I'm a little exhausted. It was kind of a crazy week. Ben, my husband, had surgery this week. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, he actually, it, it was a good thing. He had his, he's had hearing problems for a long time and he had um, his hearing fixed. One of his, he had surgery on his ear and they put in a prosthetic piece into his ear. And so now he's a cyborg. It's he- pretty cool. Has a robot ear, Robo Ben. I'm jealous. Robo Ben, I know. I, I need to get. Sorry, go ahead. No, you know what you would have been <laughs> really jealous of is when he got out of surgery. They basically had this like dome on the side of his ear, and then it was like wrapped, like wrapped around his head, just like um, Van Gogh in his self portraits when he cut his ear off. That's kind of oh, what that wow. looked like. That yeah. is cool. How come you didn't post a picture? Oh, I have a picture. Oh, good. Well, oh, I'm saving it. it for something good. <laughs> like our dumb love Instagram. Oh, you know. <laughs> oh, well, How was your God, week? Ben's doing okay. Um, not the best. Uh, <laughs> oh, the hits no. just keep on coming during the yeah. core. Um, uh, no, my father-in-law had uh, was in the hospital all week. He came. Uh, it was very scary at moments, uh, but thankfully he's doing okay, and hopefully he'll be released from the hospital from the stupid, stupid hospital soon. And then also my, as you guys know, my dog Miles passed away just a couple of months ago. Our other dog Frank. He's also an older dog, but he yeah. um, he's all we have. And uh, <laughs> he just all of a sudden just wouldn't walk and was <sighs> moaning and groaning. He cried all night long. It was horrible. And I was just like, oh, my God, please don't take my other dog. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and then also, you know, I'm upset about my father-in-law and I'm like, but this is the... 2020 can fuck itself. And so, um, but luckily I took him to the vet. I, it took like, they do everything like you have this in your car. So I sat in the car for three hours. Yeah, we're finally able to see him and he just has arthritis. He's just, he just just needed a little medicine. Just a little old man. 
So oh, looks I'm like we're going to keep them around for a little longer. Thank God. <laughs> but that was a ooh, yoy this week. I know. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, you know, I was like, so I'm waiting for Ben. I, you know, I couldn't go into the hospital with him because he's because yeah. of fucking COVID. So I'm at home. I took him to the hospital at 530 in the morning and I'm just sitting at home like nervous, you know, because my husband's having surgery. And then, of course, that's the day that our landlord decided to <laughs> cut down a tree in our backyard. Oh, my <laughs> so gosh. Like, so fucking chaotic. And I was like, my nerves were frayed. And I was just like, what the fuck else? <laughs> you know, like, what else? Uh, Wait, so, okay. My friend sent me this article um at the beginning of the quarantine and it was um it just you know lately i've just been feeling and i'm sure you've been feeling it too i'm sure many of you guys are feeling this where you're just like like lethargic can't move don't want to do anything and um it the article was about how like usually people's responses to things are fight or flight Uh uh-huh and because we're in a we're in a position right now and i'll tell you right now i'm a flighter i'm a bye bye <laughs> i run in the other direction i am not a fighter uh, so um like because in the pandemic it, we're in a situation where we can't do either fight or flight so the yeah. only other response is to play dead and that's so, my that's mine yeah and so i just feel like we're all just like kind of in this state of total panic and I feel like outside of my own body just like yeah laying like I can't do anything I have no control yeah yeah it's crazy it's tough bruh it's tough it's tough bruh tough bruh um Um, you know what we should probably all of us feel better yeah some love stories some quickies some funny funny quickies I hope it's your funny yours is yeah yeah I hope it's funny yeah I think it's funny okay you go Okay. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. My quickie is from the New Zealand Herald by a writer named Melissa Nightingale. I know. What a great last name. So 23-year-old John Casford wanted to get his girlfriend a unique present. He didn't want to get the usual flowers or chocolate. So he decided that since his girlfriend loves animals, that he would break into the Wellington Zoo and steal her a squirrel monkey. (laughs) A squirrel monkey? That's the worst one to steal. Get her like a penguin or something. Put it on some ice. Why is a squirrel monkey bad? I just feel like a squirrel monkey just sounds like something that would just claw your face off and ruin your house. Like it would just shoot across the room and destroy everything and scratch up your arms and legs and your face. Yeah, Jen. Jen, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. (laughs) See? (laughs) So on April 7th, this was in 2018, he got, in his own words, high as a kite and broke into the zoo in the middle of the night. He had to, he he like jumped over a fence and then he had to break two padlocks to get into the squirrel monkey enclosure where these little teeny monkeys, they're only like 10 inches big. They were all asleep in a corner. Uh, uh, I'm like, all right, I oh, keep going. I don't like <laughs> so rodents. I don't like I don't like gerbils. I don't like hamsters. I don't like I don't like any of it. But keep you going. don't like cute little monkeys? Oh, no, I don't like monkeys. <laughs> monkeys, I do not trust. Chimpanzees are cute, but monkeys, I just I watch too many '80s movies about killer monkeys. 
Yeah, so he so the zookeepers when they got there the next morning, they found the monkeys terrified mm. and they thought that one was missing, but she was actually later found hiding in the enclosure, but she was injured and terrified. Aww. And so John actually didn't manage to capture any of the monkeys, but when he was caught for his crime, the judge who sentenced him said I don't know what happened in the squirrel monkey enclosure. <laughs> the squirrel monkeys know. You said you couldn't find them, and I don't speak squirrel. What I do know is that by day daybreak, all the monkeys were distressed. Two of them were injured, and you had a broken leg, two fractured teeth, a sprained ankle, and bruises on your back. Holy fuck. So apparently when he ran, he got all scratched up by the monkeys, and then he hopped back over the gate and broke his leg. Uh, and he actually left the enclosure open, but none of the monkeys escaped. And the monkeys' in like injuries kind of indicated that they had been grabbed at by John. Like one <gasps> monkey had a scratch on his arm, another had like a had some scratch marks. Yeah, <laughs> it says a hematoma, which I think is like a bruise, but we'll have to ask Doctor Dudefuck to clarify on that one. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's a word I've heard her say before, but I don't know if I've ever understood it. <laughs> Like, I know she said, like, oh, yeah, it's a hematoma. And I've been like, uh-huh. I think it is a bruise. And I think um, a contusion uh -huh. is also, if I'm not mistaken, like, just a bruise or a bump. But I remember in elementary school, this poor kid, he got a, I think his name was Eric, and he was hurt on the playground and he told everybody, yeah, I had a contusion uh -huh. and everyone called him contusion for the rest of his life. <laughs> okay. Contusion. <laughs> poor because kid. Because he probably, used the clinical term. Probably like his dad's a, a doctor. Yeah. Oh my sex. It's his mom was a doctor. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? You have a contusion. <laughs> poor, his name is Eric. Not you contusion. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, according to the judge at John's sentencing, one of the monkeys continued to show signs of stress months after his break-in. Apparently, squirrel monkeys are very high, high anxiety animals. Ugh. But then, in addition to his role in the squirrel monkey incident, John was also sentenced for several other separate violent offenses that he had committed over the summer. So I guess they were just like, well, while you're here, we'll go ahead and give you everything you've done. Uh, so he has the burglary at the zoo. He also had an unprovoked attack on a man waiting in his car at a traffic light, a drunken attack on a dairy, and then salt on a community safety officer over cigarettes. And for all of his offenses, he was sentenced to two years and seven months in prison. Oh, my No news God. about whether he and his girlfriend stayed together. Ugh. I mean, I don't know that I would stay with them. <laughs> right? You couldn't even give I me a fucking wait. squirrel monkey, man. I wouldn't wait for two years for that guy, for that winner. Let him yeah. go. <laughs> Let him go. Let him go. <laughs> so that's my question. Oh, man. That's a good one. You totally delivered. Thank you for bringing the mood up. You're welcome. Um, my quickie this week is from an article for the Daily Mail, mm -hmm. and it was written by Adri Torres. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone that people in your family or your friends were against and they told you it would never last? I don't think so. I mean, I do know that after 
after I broke up with one boyfriend who I was very serious with and who everybody told me they liked, that my mom was like, oh, yeah, we were so happy that you broke up with him. I thought, well, if they got married, I was going to have a divorced daughter. I was like, why did you not say anything? <laughs> oh, no. And she's like, well, I just knew if I said something, it was just going to, you're just going to like him even more. So I thought, yeah, she'll figure it out. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> I always bring this up to my friend Gil, who's married to my friend Milani, who I love uh, dearly. But I was, I remember a long time ago when Zach and I were hanging out and it was this whole like, what are we thing? Like, Mm -hmm. it was just like, it made no sense to me. It was like, we spent all of our time together, but it was like, but he was like, I don't, I'm not looking for a girlfriend. And I was like, that's not. (laughs) And um, that whole thing. And then um, I remember saying to my friend Gil, who is a good friend of mine at at a party, and I was like, dude, Gil, I just don't get it. Like, I don't understand where he's coming from. Like, he calls me constantly. He wants to hang out with me, like, every day and every night. But, like, I don't understand what's going on in his brain. And Gil was like, Jen, I just got to tell you. He doesn't really like it. Like, he, like he was like, it's not going to work out. It's He's not. just not that into you? No, yeah. Yeah. This is pre uh, – who is the comedian? Greg Barron? Yeah. Yeah. Pre him. And uh, pre book, he's not that into you. But Gil was just like, dude, just obviously it's not going anywhere. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's not. <laughs> and we've been married for – years 12 11 i don't know where are we like i don't know Um, a million but anyway (laughs) so this couple julio caesar mora and waldramina quinteros quintero cool name uh from ecuador can tell all of their friends and family to go fuck themselves yeah because they were told many years ago many many years ago and 1934 actually okay. that they would never last this couple who are now 110 and 104 years old were just named this just a couple days ago the world's oldest married couple Dang. they were married eight they are, still are married eight decades after their families disapproved of their wedding so much so that they didn't come to their wedding so they were just recognized by the Guinness World Records as the oldest married couple in the world with a combined age of 214 years and 358 days Dang. isn't that crazy they were both born before the Titanic sank according to this article <laughs> They met in 19- 19- That's how you know you're old. Yeah. <laughs> they met in 1934 and they married in 1941. And they say that they credit their long-lasting relationship to the love and respect that they have held towards each other since they very first met. They said family unity under the rules of love, mutual respect, on- honest work, and proper education based on family values are the key to healthy coexistence. So, which is very sweet. And um, their family who initially were against the wedding, like I said, that they didn't go to the wedding, they opposed to it that much. After the years when they saw how well the couple were doing and how much they were truly in love with each other, they finally came around to them. And the couple said, with time and patience, we were able to unite them. We became an example and the best reference for the younger generations. And they now have 
11 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren, and nine great-great-grandchildren. Shit. So let's hear it for, I have to say their names again, Julio Cesar Mora <laughs> and Maldromina Quinteros Quintero from Ecuador. Yeah, congratulations, you guys. Yeah. I bet they listen. What? I said I bet they listen. They probably do. They probably do. They love love. They do love love. Why wouldn't they love dumb love? Why wouldn't they love our dumb podcast about love? Um, Good one, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, do you remember at the beginning of the quarantine when you were like, until this thing is over, I'm going to do a COVID-themed quickie every week? Oh, my God. Yeah. And now it's been – 25 weeks. Hold on. I totally, now that you said that, I did leave out a part in the article where they did address the <gasps> pandemic. It is a COVID related. It is. You oh, just man. reminded me, they did say that their favorite activities were um, taking in a show at the theater and going to movies together, which are now paused due to the COVID 19 pandemic. So hopefully, one day soon, they will be. Going to the theater together once again. Dang, man. Talk about couple goals. Couple goals. I know. I, I really – I thought that just like I always do holiday-themed quickies during holidays, I really thought the pandemic was going to be a um, couple months. Yeah. <laughs> eight weeks. <laughs> Six to uh, eight weeks. Um, yeah. But here we are at forever. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, staring down forever. Here we are. Yeah. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story? I am. This one's a little wacky. Okay. Um, Not like our usual ones are so uh, straightforward and sweet. But I got my information from Murderpedia, from Wikipedia, from HistoryLink.org, from Reader's Digest, and from CBS News, an article by David Cohn. Okay, so on June 11th, 1986, a 40-year-old Washington State bank manager, Sue Snow, woke up with a headache, and she went down into her kitchen, and she was looking for uh, some kind of pain medicine. She found a bottle of extra-strength Excedrin, and she took two. Her husband, Paul, was there, and he has arthritis, and he was on his way to work, and so she gave him two pills as well. And then her 15-year-old daughter, Haley, came downstairs. They said good morning. And then Sue went into her bathroom to take a shower. She turned on the shower, and then she walked over to plug in the curling iron. 40 minutes later, Haley started to get worried because she still heard the shower running, and she went up to check on her mom. And when she did, she found Sue lying unconscious on the bathroom floor. And Haley called 911, and Sue was taken to the hospital where doctors tried to revive her, but Sue Snow died just a few hours later. Oh, no. So doctors initially suspected an aneurysm in the brain, but they found no evidence of internal bleeding. Um, They also, the symptoms also suggested possibly an overdose, but Haley insisted that her mother didn't drink or smoke, much less take drugs. And since the cause of death couldn't be determined, they ordered an autopsy. And then while they were doing the autopsy, one of the pathologist assistants detected the scent of bitter almonds on Sue's body which is an indicator of cyanide poisoning. Yes. I yeah. know enough about poison now. Right. <laughs> you were like, podcast. I could be I'm a like, pathologist yeah. assistant. Cyanide. 
Cyanide. <laughs> Smells like almonds. I know what that is. Smells like almonds. <laughs> I know what that is. So they ran the test and they found that Sue Snow had in fact been poisoned. Oh, and yeah, yeah. So they searched Sue and Paul's home and they found that bottle of extra strength Excedrin. And when they ran tests, three of the remaining 60 capsule bottle contained a deadly level of cyanide. Holy shit. So just by like luck of the draw, Paul, even though he took Excedrin, didn't get the capsules that had it in there, didn't that have the cyanide. So on June 16th, five days after Sue's death, the FDA published the lot number of the tainted capsules, and the manufacturer, Bristol Myers, pulled the capsules from the shelves. And meanwhile, police did a search and found two other bottles of contaminated painkillers in Auburn, one in Auburn and one in Kent, and those are both suburbs of Seattle. And so hysteria spread through Washington state, like police took all non-prescription capsules from pharmacy shelves, whether they're Excedrin or otherwise. The King County Medical Examiner's Office began checking recent unexplained deaths to see if any were cyanide-caused, and a state of emergency was declared in the county. Whoa. So the investigation was turned over to the FBI. um, And so you might remember the reason why this was such a huge thing was because product tampering had become a federal crime after... Seven Chicago area people died from cyanide spiked extra strength Tylenol capsules. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, so that was in 1982. So this was just four years later. And actually, that case remains unsolved. Because I was, okay, I know enough about this kind of shit that I was like, yeah. how is this a love story? Or how does this have to do with love? <laughs> because I know that that cases so this is totally different from that so this is a different wow. this was four years after but people were like that You're had obviously caused yeah that had obviously caused a huge uproar and now people were like this is happening again oh shit so immediately it's a turnover to the fbi there were 60 agents assigned to the snow case and at first agents thought that the killer might be like a political terrorist or a disgruntled co-worker uh, but no one called to take credit or make demands And then on June 17th, a 42-year-old woman named Stella Nickel called the police, and she reported that 12 days earlier, her husband Bruce had died suddenly after taking extra-strength Excedrin capsules. Wow. So Bruce Nickel had actually already been buried, and because he – the cause of death was determined to be emphysema – but because he had volunteered to be an organ donor, there was actually a sample of his blood serum, and they tested the serum on June 19th, and it showed cyanide was there. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So police went and they looked at the – they discovered two bottles with contaminated capsules in the Nichols house. And you know now people are like, this is crazy. There are two deaths. There were more capsules out there. Like who knows who what we have in our home – A policeman in Auburn told the news, like, we've got a maniac out there. FBI agents were searching for some connections between Bruce Nichols, who was a heavy equipment operator for the state, and Sue Snow, who was a banker, but they couldn't find any connection between the two. So both Paul, who was Sue Snow's husband, and Stella Nichols filed wrongful death suits against Bristol Myers, and the FDA went and inspected the Morrisville, North Carolina plant where the extra strength Excedrin lot that contained these cyanide capsules had been packaged, but they found no traces of cyanide anywhere in the plant. Could you imagine being that plant manager? Oh my God, right? You would be like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's, 
I mean, it's got to be like the biggest nightmare. Like I, I didn't write it down, but I was reading about the Chicago one and it was, I mean, the cost of just taking everything off the shelves was like millions of dollars. And then because people just wouldn't even buy it anymore because they were so scared. So just like the loss of, you know, I mean, I know this is, that's just economic loss, but it is like, it's just like a little bit of cyanide in your, in one bottle. (laughs) It caused so much damage. (laughs) Who's it going to hurt? Oh my um, god. So, okay, so then like a young chemist at the FBI crime lab in DC discovered something peculiar about the cyanide in the five contaminated bottles. So each one contained a tiny crystal-like specks of green. And so then they they broke down the particles chemically and I remember this is in 1986, so it was probably he did it all by hand, I'm guessing. But he identified the substance as an algae killer that was used in home fish tanks. And they even came up with the brand name, which is a brand called Algae Destroyer. And so they figured that someone must have mixed the cyanide in a container that had been used earlier for crushing algicide pellets. So now there's like so many agents on the case. They're getting all of this information. Everything being collected was like just so massive. So they sent one agent, his name was Ron Nichols, to go through the entire case file from the beginning. And when he did that and went through everything, there was one thing that stood out to him. So although the FDA had examined more than 740,000 over-the-counter capsules in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Alaska, they had only found those five bottles that contained cyanide pills. And two of those bottles were found at the Nichols house, That's which wouldn't have strange. been that weird if they she had bought them at the same time. But Stella Nichols had told investigators that she had actually bought those bottles at two different stores. What? Right. So the likelihood of that seems very, very small. Yeah. So the case, now they're like, huh, maybe we'll take another look at old Stella. So police were kind of surprised that this was taking a turn towards her because she was a grandmother. She worked as like a security guard at the Seattle airport. And neighbors described her as cheerful and hardworking. And they, everybody said she seemed genuinely shocked and despondent when Bruce died. But also, isn't didn't she like Bruce was already dead, and the it was said that he had emphysema, and she's the one that called, yes, right to yes. say check him. Okay, yes, okay. So, so one of the agents also remembered something that had seemed insignificant before from the investigation but now seemed very significant was that Stella Nichol had a fish tank in her trailer. So so agents canvassed pet stores in the area asking if anyone recalled selling algae destroyer to Stella Nichol. And then on August 25th, they found a clerk at a store in Kent that identified Stella from a photo montage. And he said he remembered her because she had a little bell attached to her purse and he called her the woman who jingled. So, okay, so Stella Nichol had actually been born in Colton, Oregon, and had grown up very poor. By the age of 16, she was pregnant with her daughter, Cynthia, and then she moved to Southern California. She got married. She had another daughter, and she began to have various legal troubles. She was convicted of fraud in 1968, and then the following year, she actually was she was charged with beating Cynthia, her daughter, with a curtain oh, rod. Oh. And then she had a conviction for forgery in 1971. She actually served six months in jail for the fraud charge and then was ordered into counseling after the abuse charge. 
So this was all before she met Bruce Nichol, but she met him in 1974, and Bruce was a heavy equipment operator. He had a had a heavy drinking habit, which suited Stella because she also was a big partier. And the two were married in 1976. And over the course of their 12-year marriage, Bruce actually ended up going into rehab and got clean. And reportedly, Stella resented this, him getting clean. <gasps> Because oh, because she couldn't party anymore. Because she couldn't party anymore because he was sober, and so kind of as like she started this home aquarium as like a new hobby. They were like always hard up for money, and before Bruce died, the bank was actually starting the foreclosure process on their trailer. Uh. And then, of course, as the investigators dug, they found life insurance. So you don't say. <laughs> yes, I do say. So. Bruce's policy from the state, because he worked for the state, would pay Stella $31,000. But if his de- death was accidental, she would collect an extra $105,000. Oh, now it's making sense. Yep. And so okay. for insurance purposes, death by cyanide poisoning is considered an accident. And it turned out she'd also bought two extra policies worth $40,000. So all in all, she stood to gain more than $170,000 from his death. So when Bruce died, the doctor who examined him failed to detect the cyanide. And then afterwards, they were like, curiously, Stella had called the doctor several times after his death to question his findings that her husband had died of a natural death. And... Police asked Stella, they brought her in, they asked her to take a polygraph, and although she initially refused, she got counsel and she actually finally agreed to a polygraph test in November, and she failed it. Wow. Then in January of 1987, Stella Nichols' daughter, Cynthia Hamilton, approached the police with information. She said Stella had spoken to her repeatedly about wanting her husband dead. She said that after they had gotten sober, he preferred to stay home and watch television rather than going out to the bars. And Cynthia said that her mom had even told her that she had tried to poison Bruce previously with Foxglove. And then when that had failed, she had gone to the library to research other methods and then hit upon cyanide. Wow. And so Cynthia said that Stella had even spoken to her about what the two of them could do with the insurance money if Bruce was dead. And so police went to the Auburn Public Library, and they found that Stella had checked out numerous books about poison, including one called Human Poisonings from Native and Cultured oh Plants God. and Deadly Harvest. And yeah, they- why are, <laughs> as we've seen in our podcast, yeah. why are the poisoners always the dumbest? Right? You're All like, of them I, check out books from the library, like how to poison your husband and collect life insurance. And then they leave it on their coffee table for all. Right. They're like going to be so, well, she never even, she, here's what, ha- here's like what really clinched it for them. So one of them, she hadn't returned one of those books. And so when the police went to her home, they found the book and they found that her fingerprints were on the pages related to the cyanide. Oh my god. <laughs> yes. So she literally did leave it out with her footprint, her fingerprints. Did I say footprints before? It was fingerprints. I know, Maybe I think, footprints. I thought I you said know. thumbprints. I don't know what I said. Well, I, mean, I understood it. whatever you were saying. I got it. I got real excited. I got real, 
real fired up about that one. But isn't that crazy? I'm like, oh my God. So it's like she was like, stop here. This is the one I'm going to do. So it's like and- the little Dewey Decimal uh, <laughs> note card was laying yeah. next to the book. Poisons husband. for husbands. <laughs> So investigators, (laughs) (laughs) someone's using that as a real bespoke book bookmark right now. Yeah, those old Dewey Decimal cards. Yeah. Okay, so investigators figured that Stella's plan was just to kill Bruce, and then when it was attributed to a natural cause, she was desperate to establish an accidental Uh. cause of death. So she then put the poison painkillers in stores, hoping that someone else would die, and then the tainted capsules would be discovered. That so, is so fucked up and it's evil. It's so fucked up. So I know. fucking evil. I mean, killing your husband is evil too, but also just to like to poison at random, to kill people at random just so that you can get money is just like to get oh. a little extra money, a little to get bit, seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, it's, where are you going? I with know that it's a lot of money. Five thousand. It's not that much. It's not that much. So, so Stella was indicted in federal court on five counts of product tamper- tampering, including two which resulted in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel, and she was arrested the same day. She went on trial in April of 1988, and although she stated she was innocent, she was found guilty of all charges on May 9th after five days of jury deliberation, and she was sentenced to 90 years in prison. She was never brought up on the state charges of murder, so if she ever did get paroled, she could then be brought on those charges as well, because this was she was sentenced in federal court. So okay. So Stella actually continued to maintain her innocence after her trial. She filed an appeal based on jury tampering and judicial misconduct, and that was rejected in 1989. And then she actually filed a second appeal in 2001 with the assistance of the Innocence Project and requested wow. yeah, requested a new trial based on new evidence that they said that the FBI may have withheld documents from the defense. And that appeal was also denied, even though so they but they continue to assert her innocence. And she actually claims and a lot of people believe that her daughter, Cynthia, lied about Stella's involvement in the case in order to get the three hundred thousand dollars of reward money that was being offered by the drug companies. And Cynthia actually did collect two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of that money. What? Yeah, so some people think that Cynthia had something to do with it and that she just lied in order to get I was going to say cuz the Innocence Project is like a really great it is. My uh, guess is yeah. that there was maybe some maybe some question, questionable stuff with evidence which, you know, it's like that whether or not she is guilty or they think she is guilty, the Innocence Project might take up her case because they want to like bring to light prosecutorial misconduct. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's I couldn't find anything that was like more detailed than just that they think that the daughter lied or why the Innocence Project got involved. But yeah, all I know I'm really is that curious. all of yeah, all of her appeals have been denied. And um, as far as we know, she's guilty. Wow. Yeah. So that's the story of Stella Nickel and the Excedrin murders. Holy shit. Or maybe Christina Nickel in this. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. Wow. That's a good one. And I'm definitely going to research that because I want to know more. 
about yes, um, there's a book about it um, that really kind of leans into the theory that maybe she's innocent. And I've, I'll post what it – I can't remember what it's called, but I will I'll post about that. Wow. Crazy. Good one. Good Thanks, one, dude. dude. Are you ready for a love story? I am ready for a love story. Good. This one is a love story. There is a lot of hardships throughout. <laughs> Jen, I know. I know that's how all love stories are. There you always have to get through the dark to get to the light. I know. So. It is the, there are, you know, the the sweetest love stories that are just like they met and then they were together forever and they loved each other and they were supportive partners. It's like, well, there's no story there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in five seconds. We can tell so. it in five seconds. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I promise we will go to Happy Town. All right. Take me there. All I'm right. ready. Okay. So my um, information came from an article and also a video for Al Jazeera. Okay. Um, .com by filmmakers Ellie Gardner and Caitlin Chandler, and also um, an article for Info Migrants written by Emma Wallace. All right. So at just 44 years old, Alex Asali had been through more than most people could even fathom going through in an entire lifetime. Um, over the past 11 years, Alex has had to flee two countries, both Syria and Libya, all because he was speaking out against political corruption and human rights abuses. He was always a political activist. It runs very deep in his family. His great uncle, Shukri al-Asali, was a member of the Ottoman parliament. And mm -hmm. in 1916, he was actually executed for his criticism of Ottoman policy. And his grandfather, Sabri al-Asali, was the three-time Syrian prime minister in the 1950s. Uh, not only that, but his father was a soldier in the Syrian military who in the mid-1970s, he was forced to flee Saudi Arabia with his family after he intercepted confidential military dispatches. Alex was two years old at the time when they, their family had to flee and they moved to Saudi Arabia. Sadly, in the year 2000, his father passed away. And then in 2003, his family decided that they would return back to their ancestral home, which is in the Syrian capital of Damascus. At this point, Alex was 24 years old. They thought, you know, it, would, it was safe for them to go back because their father had passed away. But when they returned, their return did not go unnoticed by the Syrian government. Alex says, he says, they thought I was the same as my father. So they associated him with his dad and they made Alex have to report his whereabouts every few weeks to the authorities. So he would, he was treated like a criminal and had to right. report <clears throat> regularly. He said that he began to doubt their decision to return, but um, his mother was like, it's fine. They're soon. They're going to forget you. You know, it, it's just going to be, you know, this way for now, but everything will be fine. Just go through, like, let's just get through this. And so yeah. he started to be build a life for himself there. He opened up a modest shop selling computer parts. 
And he really enjoyed, you know, learning more about his homeland, seeing things mm-hmm. that he were familiar to him at when he was a child, and then th- learning things that he didn't know about. So after um, a few months, though, Alex ran into an old friend of his father's, and his his father's friend told him about a political group that was opposing the country's president, Bashar al-Assad, mm-hmm. and that he was a part of this movement called the Damascus Declaration. When the family friend asked Alex to help, like, will you help with my organization by printing out some flyers in his shop, he agreed to do it, but then he became more involved in the organization. It resonated with him, and he felt strongly. He began to anonymously share the group's information about their dislike of Assad online. The government was then able to track him down. So in September of 2006, three years after he had been living in Syria, his cousin called him at work and told him that the police are outside of his apartment. And he told he said that he remembers his cousin just told him, run, just run. And he did it. Can you imagine? No. And he, so he did exactly that. He couldn't even go back home. He took $2,000 from his cash register Uh, which was all they had. And he didn't even have his passport with him. So he just ran from his work and he held a taxi, which took him to Beirut, Lebanon. And Mm -hmm. so he was there for a while, but then some friends helped him board a ship to Cyprus. And he didn't have any identifying documents. He didn't have his passport. He didn't have ID. So the only job that he could get was cleaning hotel bathrooms. So he really struggled to get by on the meager wages that he was making. But eventually he was able to save up $600. And with that, he managed to get to Cairo, where he spent another six months cleaning hotel rooms for money. So after he was in Cairo, a friend of one of his sister's told him about a free place that he could stay in Libya. And he accepted the offer and moved to Libya, where he stayed in a village in the district of Zawiya. And that's where things started to fall into place for him. He, He was able to get a fake ID card, and he got a job as an IT manager at the Tripoli University. And everything was seeming very calm in his life, and he thought that the turmoil was behind him. Even bought a plot of land, and he built his own house. And wow. uh, Zoya had become his home. He got married. He had two children. He was, you know, living a wonderful life. But sadly, that peace would soon be taken away from him. Oh, man. Um, I know, Jen. Come on. I know. I'm sorry. Um, So Alex, he started to speak up and criticize the then Libyan leader, very famous Muammar Gaddafi. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, speaking up against him. And every time he he did speak up, he was arrested on several occasions and he had to spend a month in prison each time. But he said that it was worth it because in August 2011, Gaddafi was removed from power. And yeah. he said that the year after the re- revolution, which was 2012, was the most beautiful year of my life. I felt free. For the first time, I felt safe to tell people who I was. But again, that was short-lived because the civil war soon broke out. And in 2013, groups affiliated with the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, the I- ISIL, entered Zawiya, and that's when everything changed. He said that 
when the ISIL arrived, people were killed for having an opinion. Every day I saw someone dead on the streets or in the sea. Alex then created a Facebook group to expose the ISIL's crimes, and it attracted 25,000 followers. For weeks, he was exchanging online messages with this man who he thought shared the same views that he did. Mm-hmm. And then he sent him his personal telephone number. And then the next no, no. yeah. No, no, no. And then the next day, several men turned up at his house and arrested him. Um Alex, he got catfished in the worst possible way. Totally. I know. Alex was taken to a makeshift prison where um they tortured him, but he says that he thinks that they kept him alive only because they thought that he had valuable information since he was the person leading this Facebook group with all this information. And they severely beat him and tortured him. And he thinks that they wounded him like that to serve as a warning to the other prisoners. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've seen some pictures and uh, it's just heartbreaking. Um, And he was tortured so badly that he – thought he was just going to die and he accepted that that he was going to die but then three months later all of a sudden his captors offered him freedom in exchange for his house and car like if you give me your house and your car we'll let you go and he immediately agreed then the man that he made the deal with paid for him to reach sabratha city so he was able to get there where he waited to board a boat to Italy. And for days, he waited for this boat at a farm with hundreds of other people that were also waiting for the boat. And when they eventually boarded, there was 380 people with him and the boat sank midway throughout <gasps> the journey. Mm-hmm. My God. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not funny. It's just so, I, it's like, oh, I oh, know. at every turn. I know. And so. I, you know, I feel really bad that I was complaining about. Me too. My tree being cut down earlier. And uh, me complaining about my dog and, you know, uh, just, it's, yes, like this is a reminder that we're, we're c- complaining about the pandemic and, you know, homeschooling and everything. But this story is just a reminder of like to take a look at what some people's lives are like. And this man is 44 years old. It's crazy. So it's crazy. uh, When he thinks, he said that when he thinks back to that night, he remembers laying in the sea, he was just floating. And he says that he saw others that he met on the boat, struggling to stay afloat alongside him. And everything just kept coming in and out of focus. He said, the waves take you where they want. And he was for two hours, he was just drifting in the sea. And he said he couldn't even feel his own body. And more than 100 people drowned that night. But he was eventually rescued by the Italian Navy. And a few weeks later, he arrived in Germany. And when he arrived in Berlin, he had nothing. A woman at the station uh-huh. showed him the way to where he where he needed to go. And she bought him his first currywurst, he said. And she gave him 50 euros to pay for a hotel for the night. And then the very next day, he said that two female students showed up at the hotel in just to help him. You know, like the people of Berlin were be just so kind to him. 
yeah. in every way. And um, so he said that the first house he lived in, in Berlin, he lived in a refuge that was run by a couple at the Berlin City Mission. And this house takes in people in need of protection from around the world, uh, as well as people like uh, uh, homeless people in Berlin living on the streets. And so he lived in this home for a little while, and that's where he started cooking in the kitchens in this share house. And every Saturday he would cook and bring it to people that didn't have food and try to help people, other people find places to stay in Berlin. He said that he would walk around Berlin and he would see people sleeping on the streets. So he would help them arrange rooms at the city mission. And, and then he also just began volunteering at a homeless shelter. Just, That's yeah, he, he said that the work, all of this work and keeping busy just quieted his mind because he was missing his family because he had hoped that his wife and children were going to come join him. Right. Um, you know, after he finally found refuge in Germany and he did talk to his wife for a little while on the phone, but his wife then asked for a divorce and told him that he was a traitor and that she thought that he was working against them. And Aww. he says that he thinks it's because that his wife had converted to IS because one of his brother one of her brothers was an IS supporter. So he believes that maybe he changed her mind and got her to see him as an enemy. And he kept trying to make contact with his family, but after a month he lost all contact with his wife and children. Which is just so sad. That's very sad. I know. On top of it. Everything. All of his other lost, yeah. I know. And his family, his other family is still scattered around Syria, and he keeps in touch with two of his sisters, but three of his other sisters and his mother no longer talk to him because even though he was born Muslim, he now identifies as a Christian. Yes. So even though he, he had no home, he had no family, and he says that whatever happens in the future, he knows he'll never return to Syria. And he has nothing. So what he does to pass his time is he just helps the homeless, and he learns this new language, and he's taking steps. He says he's taking small steps to connect his past with his present. And yeah. inspired by the kindness that he received from the strangers when he first arrived in Germany, he made it his mission to give back to the community. And in June of 2015, he started a project to feed the, feed the homeless people of Berlin. So not only was he just cooking food and going out, but he started this entire uh, and giving it to people, but he started this entire project. Okay, so this is a little broken up because this quote from him, because he's still learning German and then it was translated to English. But it right. says, <laughs> I tried to find a way to say thanks to the German people who accept the Syrian ref refugees here. I lived this situation before. Sometimes I didn't find food for myself to eat. It was hard. It was really hard. But when I arrived in Berlin, I started to find really kind people. So he now cooks rice and stew as part of his church project that he set up in order to give back to this country that offered him shelter. He has a very small income, but with that small income, he buys groceries and he cooks meals in his kitchen, and then he brings it out to the streets of Berlin and offers it to people. Every Saturday, he goes down to the Alexanderplatz station where he cooks for people, and around 100 homeless people gather each Saturday to eat his food. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Um, and he has a little sign on his 
on his table. Again, it's a little broken up because it's German translated to English and right. uh, and in his writing, but it says it's ser- it's Christian serious project to help the homeless people or anybody need help in Germany. Our target is to give something back to people who helped us. We are not consumer people, but we are people who love tender. We want to be a positive part in the German community. Want to be one hand Syrian and German citizens to help the other and help each other's. So he has this table with that sign on it and he was feeding people and his friend who was also in his uh, involved with his project, her name's Tabia Boo, took a picture and posted it on Facebook along with his message and it quickly went viral. It was shared yeah. everywhere. And Alex said that People, some people were surprised that a Syrian refugee would reach out to homeless people in this way, but he explains saying that he just wanted to live in peace as one community, like not yeah. caring about religion or culture. He just wants peace in a community because he's lived in turmoil his whole life and political strife. And so the soup kitchen quickly grew and more and more people wanted to help and uh, people you know, saw this Facebook post that went viral. And that's where 52-year-old Claudia Loney first heard about Alex and what he was doing. She knew that she wanted to get involved, but she was a little bit worried about going to meet this like strange man in his house to cook food. (laughs) So she met him. um, She asked him to meet her at a cafe. The two of them met at a cafe and they talked for hours and hours and hours. And they said it was love at first sight. Oh, yeah, yay. I know. So <laughs> I like, told you there's love. Like, maybe it's. I was like, maybe it's just love it's, of the community, which is which is perfect. That's wonderful. Love of a new country. I get that. There's <laughs> love, love, love in it. But there's Real love, love too. <laughs> she said it was really kitschy the way that they met, but since their first meeting, they have been they have been a couple and they've been together ever since. Um, oh, so they good. got married. And Alex actually changed his last name to Claudia's last name, which is Loney. So Alex is now Alex Loney. And because he said that Claudia is my homeland. And they uh, live in um, an apartment in Berlin and they have a cat named Ramon. Mm -hmm. And together they continue to run the soup kitchen, which is not only for people that are homeless, but he invites anybody to come and have soup and talk. He just wants people to talk to each other. He says to him, it's not just about feeding people. It's about human connection and community. His ultimate message is human kindness and human connection. And he's trying to, he did start an Indiegogo to which has since closed because I wanted to donate it, but it's closed. But I'm sure we can find other ways to donate. Um, but he had a goal of thirty thousand, but he only made five hundred dollars. Oh. Uh, I know, but it. But his goal in raising this money was not for him. That he wanted to start a restaurant. Like that was his goal was to start a restaurant that was just to feed the homeless. And then after that, he wanted to start a community in a big house and start workshops for the homeless. So he still has big dreams to do all of these things. And I hope that, you know, people will support him and, and I'll try to find um, a link to maybe there's another GoFundMe or something that we can contribute to. Um, Yeah. Or contribute to the charity. Yeah. But he said um, him and his wife tattooed the word love across their wrists. So um, 
or I'm sorry, I think it's L-O on one wrist and V-E on the other wrist so that when they hold hands, as they often do, the letters unite to spread their message and feelings. Isn't that cute? That's really cute. Claudia does have a 27-year-old daughter who was a little shocked at the tattoo part, but nevertheless, she was uh, at their wedding and was very supportive, and all of their friends and family are very supportive. Alex hopes to gain German citizenship later this year. Um, And due to the coronavirus restrictions, the soup kitchen is put on hold right now, Mm -hmm. Um, but they do hope to start cooking again soon. And they said that the recipes used to be mainly Syrian, but now they have gained some German accents too. (laughs) He said there will always be lentil soup now. (laughs) So hopefully they'll get cooking again soon. And I hope that he fulfills his dreams of making these, um, the restaurant and the community for homeless people. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a good one, dude. Thanks, man. I hope I, I hope I did it okay. I think you did it great. I was like on the edge of my seat. Oh, good. What's going to happen next? And then he fell in love. I told you there would be love. I told you. <sighs> awesome. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Let's do it. Okay, I'll start. Okay. Um. So I talked about this at the beginning, <laughs> but my dumb thing is just that you know, it was a hard week, then had surgery. And that's always, I don't know, not always that scary was a little scary. But the good thing is, is that hopefully Ben will be able to hear better. I really I'm excited for him. And I hope that um, he won't really know until it's like over the next couple weeks, they'll know how how much better his hearing is going to get. So we'll see. We'll see. I'll keep you guys updated. And then also what I love is that my dad and stepmom came up and took uh, Max down to Florida with them so that we weren't dealing with small child plus recovering from surgery all at the same time. So that's that so nice. So nice. It's been a very, it's been a nice break. And, uh, and I just am really grateful that uh, my dad was just so willing to come up and, and, uh, and help us out like that. Cause it's like a six hour drive and he drove up and drove back down and they're having a great time. Like, they're going to the beach and swimming at night and um, yeah, just having a lot of fun. So yeah, so I'm grateful for that. What and a good dad. That's a good I dad. Know. It is. It is. I feel I'm really lucky and just, yeah. And I, it's, re- they're, it's really cute to see Max with them. I just, he really loves being there and he's having a great time. So I, we were a little worried because he hasn't spent a lot of time away from us mm-hmm. ever in general. And then but now he's spent not. a lot of time with you. So he's probably like, <laughs> yes, Thanks. exactly. I know. That's what we were like. He's probably just happy to have someone else to talk to. Right? Yeah. Like, it's like someone to tell is like, do his bits on. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. So cute. Yeah, um, very cute. What about you, dude? Awesome. Um, for, So for something dumb, I feel like it's some like it's so hard to it used to be easier to do something dumb than something I love, but now it's like for something dumb, it's like everything everything's fucking dumb. <laughs> everything's fucking dumb. Like man. you know, between everything in Kenosha and all the political strife and you know, Lebanon and California's burning, like it's just I um I'm like paralyzed. 
Yeah. And it's too much. Just, yes. There's just too much. Um, but something I love <laughs> is uh, <laughs> there's this really great – okay, you know I love Housewives. <laughs> I know. You do. Okay, before you guys get mad at me for ch- making this about Housewives after saying all those horrible things that happened, that's not what this is. Um, okay. <laughs> I listened to this podcast. It's called Bitch Sash. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Um, yes. I – Love it. It's so funny. It's uh, hosted by Casey Wilson and Danielle Schneider. Uh, Very, very funny. And um, they are both members of this organization called the Jane Club. And it's uh, one of their repeat guests, June Diane Raphael, who's an actress, Mm -hmm. probably knows who she is, and a comedian. But she um, uh, is one of the founders of the Jane Club. And I've always heard them talk about this. um, It's It basically is like this workspace in L.A., and women, uh, it's for women. And you could, once you have a membership, you can go, you work there. They have like childcare. They have uh, things for kids to do. They have, it's a community of women helping women. And even like throughout the day, they have meditations, they have yoga classes, they have just check-ins, you know, you can come yeah. out of your office and come chat with people. They have like wind down Wednesdays, all this. I've heard them talk about it for a long time, but now yeah. that it's, um, we're in quarantine and they can't, the office, you know, people aren't working at it. They've opened it, the Jane club up to, to where um, it's all virtual. So now anyone can join. And I did. You did. And it is so great. It's so great. It's um, every hour. There's something like you can just, there's a Slack group that everybody communicates with um through and you could talk all day long to other women just people needing help like what are you doing for childcare during work or i have this issue does anybody need help or i'm looking for a job does anybody know of any you know what i mean it's just women yeah. helping women and supporting women and like every hour there's zoom meetings for like meditate like you could do zoom meditations you can do pilates classes you can do whatever actually tonight we're doing so this one is hosted by june's husband um who's paul Shear, who's a mm-hmm. actor comedian you guys probably know him from like black monday the league um everything yeah oh i remember him from when i was in my early 20s and i lived in new york i would go to upright citizens brigade and I would, he would, he was one of the um, improv actors. Very funny. But anyway, um, he is hosting for kids tonight at seven o'clock our time, four o'clock their time, is hosting a um, kids comedy show. Oh, so so it's, yeah, so anybody can join. So my kids, we're going to watch it, but my kids who think they're so fucking funny, not on Zoom, like they're, they're always like, doing bits and stuff like you right. said and we're like do this comedy show and now now they're both like no but they're gonna watch oh. it <laughs> they're gonna watch it but they don't want to be on it yet i'm hoping maybe they'll change their minds once they see it but anyway i think that's so cool that the community is so small at this point that it's like they like the other night they had a book reading with sarah schaefer who's a comedian and mm-hmm. she talked about there was like maybe 20, 30 people in this small little Zoom with Sarah Schaefer talking about her book that she just wrote. It's great. So That's awesome. So you can join. You can get $10 off your first month with the code InsiderJaneEF. Uh, I'm sorry, InsiderJaneFF. Now, awesome. I'm not getting anything from this. 
they, I did not tell them I was going to be posting this. <laughs> I just really, truly think that it's a great organization um, and it's it's great. And I think that um, you guys could get a lot out of it. But it's called yeah. um, Insider Jane FF is the code. The Jane Club, get $10 off your first month. And I'll see you on there. What's crazy is that when I when you join there, they like introduce you to the group, like everybody say hello, blah, blah, blah. And when I joined, this girl who is friends with Powell, uh, one of my good friends, was like, was like, hey, and she lives in LA and she's an actress. She's like, I met you when I came to Atlanta. Welcome to the club. <laughs> oh, like, that's hey. awesome. <laughs> Cool. So it's real cool. So I love it. And everybody needs some connection right now. And that's totally like such a absolutely. better way to do it than like social media. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, these are real people and you're having a real connection at your home. That's yes. awesome. And it's How just cool. it's a really great support system for a time where I feel like people really need it right now. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah, dude. I love that. I love that thing you love. Thanks. I love that you love the thing that I love. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, that's our show this week. It's been a crazy week for us. I hope that it's been a good week for you guys. And uh, I hope this next week is uh, is much calmer for everyone. And uh, you guys, if you want to find us, you can, you know, follow us on the socials. Please rate and review. Uh, find us on Patreon. And just know that we appreciate you guys so much. Can I tell you one dumb thing before we go, guys? Yes, you can. You remember that time that I was sitting at my husband's desk and I started messing with his knife and I uh-huh. couldn't close it and then uh-huh. I had to go out there and be like can you close this for me uh-huh. I just did it again <laughs> <laughs> jam so, that knife in the desk Jen assert your dominance <laughs> <laughs> thanks you guys for listening we love you so much and get out there safely with the mask on and do something dumb for love Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum